Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. As the days slide into one another like Arsenal defenders at a set piece, we're back again to tackle the big topics today. What happened in Season 4 of the Champions League, The Road to Rome? What's a shot at glory like? And did Robert Duval think it was actually a Russ Abbott biopic? And who will triumph as Honigstein and Story get their shot at glory in the Intertotally Cup? It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. What, again? So, it's Thursday, listener. And off we go with another Totally Football show. In this one, we have for you Alvaro Romeo. Hola, Alvaro. Hola, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Also, we are joined by James Horncastle. Hello. And yes, Duncan Alexander is back with us. Hi, Duncan. Hi, James. Hi, everyone. Hi. By the way, James and Alvaro don't turn up on Tuesdays anymore. The Euro show's been furloughed, so there you go. Stop that. An outrage. Well, you know, difficult times. Do you know it's been a month since the last Premier League game? That disappeared over the horizon really quickly. Do you know the last player to have a shot as it stands in Premier League history? Who? It's very exciting. It's Mark Albrighton. I can picture it in my mind. Yeah. What other last ever or last ever for now? So if people are listening to this on Thursday at 9.49 and about 30 seconds tonight, just look out at the moon or something, because that will be exactly a month since all Brighton's final shot. <laughs> that is haunting, think about it. Right. Wow, a month since the last Premier League game. Two months since, you know, the, the notion of suspending football, I don't think it crossed many people's mind, and only one month ago until podcasts start doing retro features on their retro uh, features. For now, though, we've still got delights in store. Uh, 95-96 coming up for us, as we, we mentioned with our Champions League look-back special. But let's uh, let's get some news now, because there's been plenty of it since our last show. Not least the fact that with uh, Daniel Story's words ringing in their ears, Liverpool changed their minds about furloughing their non-playing staff. Uh, CEO Peter Moore apologising for the club coming to the wrong conclusion, as he put it. Spurs, meanwhile, continued to earn plaudits for their response to COVID-19. Jose Mourinho busted holding a training session on Hadley Common with uh, various players. Uh, Tunga Ndombele uh, was pictured alongside him. He's since apologised. Still better than Kyle Walker's doing. A. In more positive news, uh, Players Together initiative. 20 Premier League captains have reached agreement on the formation of a charitable fund which they hope will raise in excess of £4 million for the NHS. It's going to be administered by Jordan Henderson of Liverpool, Harry Maguire of Man United, Troy Deeney of Watford and Martin Nubel of West Ham. At a time when players are easy pickings for politicians looking to score points, this, uh, this is a very welcome move. It is a nice move, James. It was one that uh, they were already planning even before uh, Matt Hancock uh, answered that question in that press conference which directed uh, criticism towards them it's very encouraging to see uh, that's kind of self-awareness and willingness to help um, from a a category of very wealthy people in society um, I think uh, others uh, could play their part uh, as well um, to use uh, Matt, <laughs> Matt Hancock's language um, but no I think uh, very positive these things take time to put together um, they've done it and they uh, they deserve credit for it. In Spain, meanwhile, Alvaro, this week brought the sad news of the passing of Radomir Antic, aged 71. He died of uh, pancreatitis, so nothing related to the COVID-19. Uh, he got sick at the end of 2019 and um, he was a very relevant figure in Spanish football, uh, not only because he is the only manager uh, to have coached Barcelona, Real Madrid and Atletico de Madrid, but also because despite his dubious stints at Real Madrid and Barcelona, he didn't win titles there, 
que igual de manager who plotted and who masterminded Atlético de Madrid's double in 1996. Atlético had spent already 19 years not winning a league title by that point in history. And he created a very solid team, a team that was capable of uh, outmuscling physically the rest of the teams in La Liga. And uh, that is probably one of the biggest hits in Atlético de Madrid history, winning the double with Rado Mirantic. And he, he was the, the guy who created this team a little bit from scratch, really, because Atlético didn't have such a good squad. And then after he retired as a manager, he became a really good pundit in Spanish TV and Spanish radio. He was a funny man. Uh, he said whatever crossed his mind, which made him astonishing for television. And uh, I felt a little bit identified with him in the sense that uh, despite having spent many years in Spain, he still didn't master the language very well. And uh, he didn't know how to use the articles before the nouns and all that. So he was a very funny character indeed. Alvaro, your Spanish is very good. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Nick Roche wants to know, Raddy Antic, what does he mean to Atletico Spanish football in general? And, asked Nick, his influence on Simeone, who, of course, has successfully managed to kind of pick up that mantle and run with it. He managed to get the best out of Diego Pablo Simeone. Simeone was definitely one of the best players of that Atletico. I think that Simeone's energy was pivotal to an Atletico de Madrid team, maybe with not, not so much energy in the midfield with Pantic and Caminero, who weren't very hardworking. And then Simeone moved to Italy, then Simeone came back to Atletico de Madrid, but I think that he wouldn't have been the same player without Rado Mirantic in his career. In fact, Simeone was uh, one of the best scorers of Atletico de Madrid in the double uh, winning season, and uh, he scored many goals uh, in set pieces as well, which is something that Rado Mirantic prepared a lot uh, before the games. Rado Mirantic, who passed away this week, was forever a part of the English football folklore after his uh, famous goal in 1983 that saved Luton from relegation sent Man City down, uh, sparking antiques uh, from mm. David Pleat, of course, all over the pitch. And he gets the cross in, and Williams has come. Antich! Oh, it's there! They've done it! Ready, Antich! Some lovely white shoes which have gone down in football legend. I mean, I guess as Luton manager in the 80s, you do have more chance for variation with shoes because of their plastic pitch. You wouldn't have to worry about them getting muddy in the depths of winter. So um, it's unsurprising, perhaps, that Pleat was able to cut loose. But nice to see. Very nice. All right, then. Uh, coming up next, more tough cues than your local supermarket on lockdown because it's game four of our quiz, the Intertotally Cup. Alvaro here, Pat Nevin and James Horncastle have all made it through to the quarterfinals already. The latter, though, taken to a tiebreaker in our last show by Tom Williams. Up next, it's Honigstein's story. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. It is the quiz sensation that's sweeping the nation. Two rounds and two sets of five questions each. Why not? Listen to get a pen and paper and play along at home as we meet today's contestants. First, here's the Bavarian Brainiac, the Germanic genius. You may say, are you a right hand? And he will say, I am Raphael Honeystone Honigstar. All right, gang, let's start. Number one. Woo! Rafa, how are you feeling? Yeah, I feel great. I feel energised. Right. Done no prep, am I right? I've done some prep. Okay, good. Well, we'll see if you've done enough, because you're up against one of the dark horses of the competition. And his opponent, he is a two-time European champion of angst, the most learned man in Loughborough, he is Daniel the Self-Doubter Story. Interesting intro there, Daniel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, bizarre. Are you plagued by doubts as you approach your specialist round of class? What is your specialist subject gonna be? I'm always plagued with doubt, and the specialist subject is English Football League Club nicknames. Right. If only you'd gone with self-doubt as a specialist subject. Mm. Anyway, team nicknames, that's what you've gone with. Rafa, what's your specialist subject? My specialist subject, James, is 2012-13 season of Bayern Munich. Excellent. And you're first to go. So let's get cracking if you're both ready. Rafa, your first question is... Who were the only team to beat Bayern in the Bundesliga in this season? Bayer Leverkusen. Correct. 
Question 2. Bayern set the record for the most points gained in a Bundesliga season this year. Whose record did they break? Borussia Dortmund's. Correct. Question 3. Here's a list of sides that Bayern faced in the Champions League that campaign. Which team is missing? Barcelona, Dortmund, Juventus, Arsenal, Valencia and Bati Borisov. Who's missing? Uh, um, Lille. Correct. Question four. Eight members of the Bayern starting eleven from the Champions League final have also played in a World Cup final. Can you name the three, though, that haven't? David Alaba. Mm-hmm. Dante. Correct. And the missing man? And uh, missing man would be... Javi Martinez? Is correct. So this for the perfect score on your specialist subject. Question five. Why did Dante and Luis Gustavo miss the DFB Pokal final? They were playing the Confed Cup with Brazil. Well, they were called to a pre-Confederations Cup training camp by Brazil, but I think we'll accept that. At the end of your specialist subject round, Rafa, you've scored five out of five. Happy? Yes. All right. Uh, five uh, for Rafa, but fear for you, Daniel, to use German numbers. Very good. All Very right. good. Right. Uh, okay. Well, let's see now then if you can match that as we give you five questions on football club nicknames. Question one Which current English club other than Manchester United go by the nickname The Red Devils? Uh, tough start. It's Salford City. It's not. It's Crawley Town. Question oh two. Goodness. Which team are the shrimps and which team are the shrimpers? So the shrimps are Morecambe and the shrimpers are Southend. Correct. You're on the board. Question three. Why are Sheffield Wednesday known as the Owls? Uh, because the, the, there's a principality of a town called Owlerton, which is in the near, near the stadium. Right. Excellent. That's correct. Question four. What was Sunderland known as before their official nickname became the Black Cats in 1997? <sighs> I will say the Mackhams, but I don't think it's right. No, it's not right. The answer is the Rokerites. Bad subject. Question five, then. Which Premier League club used to go by the Glaziers? Uh, Crystal Palace. Correct. So at the end of that round, you've scored three out of five, Daniel. Only two points behind, Rafa. <laughs> two feels quite a lot out of five, but yes. It does, doesn't it? But we'll see if maybe you can turn the tables on former DJ Rafa Honigstein when you return for the general knowledge round later on. I, I didn't know there was a general knowledge round. <laughs> You're funny, Rafa. Well, Rafael Honigstein flying then, but to stick the court back in that champagne, Rafa, because it's not over yet, particularly as, Duncan, two-point lead, that's probably the most dangerous lead in quizzing, isn't it? Well, I mean, you know, this is the first time I've been on a show with Alvaro since our, you know, last 16 clash, and it's fine now. It's very much like, do you remember when Arsene Wenger was the end of his career, him and Alex Ferguson were sort of mates by the end. It's, it feels like that that sort of vibe now. Whereas last week, if I'd have, if I'd have seen Alvaro in the street, they'd have been fisticuffs. So it's wow. good to get to kind of place. It means so very, very much. It's a tough category that Daniel picked there that he uh, had a little bit of trouble with, uh, team names. I know he was regretting that. I feel like player nicknames would have been uh, a better subject. You could have questions like... Um, what was the nickname of Kiki Musampa, who played in the 1996 Champions League final? Ooh. The answer, Chris. Chris Musampa. Goodness who me. was nicknamed One Size? Fitzhall. Fitzhall. That's right. What was David yeah. Ngo's nickname? Wash. Exactly. Uh, oh, and how big a waste was it when Fulham had a player called Morris Voltz and they nicknamed him Hoff? <laughs> He famously scored the 15,000th goal in the Premier League. Uh, right. And the headline on the Observer was 15,000 votes. But you see, that's better. Although, wasn't it then later ruled an own goal? 15,000 yeah. So yeah. yeah, someone turned the power off. Oh, uh, another uh, popular topic recently was ironic names for footballers. A Dominic Dropsy for a goalkeeper, that kind of thing. Uh, 
Jimbo Jr., a.k.a. Tiago, was saying, why did you not mention Messi in here? Which is certainly, certainly perhaps the ultimate example. Matt Hawksworth equally offers uh, Gomez for Leon before he signed for Swansea and turned out to be distinctly average. Yeah, Gomez. But possibly the winner... Joe De Haas, who tweeted this morning to say, I'm fashionably late, but I have another great ironic footballer name. Shord Aas, who is a burly six-foot target man who wreaked havoc in the Dutch second tier for many years. He includes a Wikipedia a link, thankfully, because I was convinced he was, he'd made it up. Over six foot tall, and he was called Shord Aas. <laughs> <laughs> Any more ironic names or nicknames? Well, there's the ironic... Uh, nicknames that some players got in Italy, like remember when Inter signed uh, Darko Pansev from Red Star Belgrade, and he was known the Cobra. As the, he was the Cobra, but Interisti, after watching him miss lots of chances and not score many goals, um, called him Ramado, which was uh, a grass snake. So a uh, right. a much less threatening, less dangerous um, reptile. Uh, I see. Than the uh, than the uh, Cobra. Good to see James is maintaining his snake power rankings during the uh, isolation period. <laughs> He's claimed that grass snakes are less threatening than cobras, which, to be fair, I would agree with, but I'd like to right. see the full list. Uh, I think the black mamba is the mamba at the top. I don't know. Right. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, Nick Miller spoke to Morris Voltz uh, recently, and he's just put a piece out today on the thetotallyfootballshow.com. Uh, it's very interesting. He talks about working with Julian Nagelsmann at RB Leipzig. So very interesting that there. Right now, though, on the Totally Football show, a spot of zombie football with the latest instalment of our journey through the Champions League. It's season four, Ajax and Juve, and a whole lot more. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Getting a road named after you in your hometown, special. Winning the little jackpot on Paddy Power Games, not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com, 18plusbgamblerware.org. Listeners, if you've always wanted to hablar espanol, sprecher auf Deutsche, or parler couramment le français, or indeed parler l'italiano, but you didn't think you had the time to attend a language class, well, now might be the perfect time. Why not get on board with Babbel? Babbel brings language classes into the 21st century with online courses and daily 10 to 15 minute lessons designed to quickly get you speaking your new language within weeks. You learn through interactive dialogues and real-life conversations, while Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you improve your pronunciation and your accent. Ooh la la. No matter if you're using a desktop, mobile or tablet, Babbel syncs your progress across all devices. Try it for yourself today by heading to babbel.co.uk and downloading the app for free on Android or iPhone. That's B-A-B-B-E-L, so like Marcus, not Ryan, .co.uk. Babble, learn a new language and make it your own. On Spotify, smart speaker, and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Bubble Show from Muddy Knees Media. Listener, it's 1995. Blur and Oasis are waging a war for the nation's soul in the pop charts with Country House and Roll With It. Radiohead are rising so fast they've got <laughs> The Bends. DVDs, USBs and the PlayStation are all making their debuts. In the cinema, James Bond is back with Goldeneye, Tom Cruise begins his Mission Impossible run and Kaiser Soze, well, like that, he's gone. And season four of the Champions League is getting underway. Duncan, for younger listeners like James here, what do you remember of mid-90s life? Well, we, I think Daniel said on the pod on Monday that about the Premier League that 93-94 was still a kind of, you know, the first division. But I would say the first division era kind of carried on till at least the mid to late 90s, really. Probably till Arsene Wenger came in with his pasta recipe. So, yeah, I mean, football then, there was no internet, or there was very, unless you were some sort of mad scientist, there wasn't really much internet. Um, so it was still kind of C-Fax, club call, you'd still be tempted in with, you know, 
uh, whatever your team was, you know, linked with Croatian ace or something. So you'd have to spend 48p a minute to find out. So you would dial up a number using a dial phone. Mm. Yeah, my mum used to give me a a phone card, a BT phone card, in case I got into trouble, assuming that I'd be near a public phone whenever I got into trouble, I assume. But I used to spend it all on on club calls, and they used to go very quickly. There was an urban myth you could paint nail varnish on them and they would last forever, but that was was false, as I found out. So for fans, you couldn't really complain about teams or managers or players very easily. You'd have to write into local papers or even the even the clubs. And I remember at my club, Wickham, Martin O'Neill, who was manager in, in 95, used to basically use his manager's um, notes column in the programme to have a go at people who had writ- written him letters. So they'd be like, why were we rubbish in this game? And he would just eviscerate them in, in text. It was good. Um, but then that obviously changed towards the le- end of the decade. Then message boards came in. And then obviously now we're in a social media age when anyone can say anything. Amazing. Just another world, Duncan, another world. All right, in the Champions League, there were the usual suspects there as well. Ajax, who'd won the previous summer and were looking to retain that title. Juventus, who began their remarkable run of three finals in a row. And the other two semi-finalists, Nantes and Panathinaikos. Hang on, Nantes and Panathinaikos? (laughs) How on earth were they in the semi-finals? Well, I mean, this was a great Nantes uh, side, James, uh, with uh, Jean-Claude Soideau still in charge. He, a little bit like Guy Roux, uh, was a one-club man for so many, many years. We're, we're talking a, a reign at that club that um, I think lasted between 1960 and 1997. And though I think he only won four league titles, those titles are remembered as some of the the greatest in in French football history, um, you know, in terms of the one that they won in was it eighty two eighty three. That is fondly remembered as a team that played the best football in France, uh, not just that year but ever. Um, and likewise, in in the mid nineties, you think of so many of the players who who came through there, um, be it Marcel Desailly, um, Didier Deschamps, who'd be playing for Juventus um, by this time, Claude Makélélé. It was a team that was maybe less technically gifted than his um, his 80s vintages, uh, if you want to put it like that. But I think won the league to get into the Champions League that year, I think only losing one game. They, they almost went the entire season unbeaten, um, you know, sort of emulating those great sides that have done that either before them or after them, Ajax, Milan, Arsenal, uh, Juventus on the Conte. So, you know, a serious team. But, you know, as we've uh, we've discussed when talking about French sides in Europe before, you know, Marseille, the only team to win um, the Champions League. But this was a great year for French football in general because PSG won the Cup Winners' Cup, um, mm. I think. So to see Nantes go to the semis as well um, and and play some, some thrilling football. I always remember Patrice Loco and some of the goals that he used to score was really refreshing. And this was back, of course, you, you mentioned Panathinaikos, back when a lot of these teams were, yeah, in Panathinaikos' case, almost all Greek. They had two foreigners, Borelli and uh, Vazika, who's one of the best best foreign players to ever play for Panathinaikos, um, scored boatloads of goals, I think close to 250 uh, for them. I mean, that's kind of what we cry out for these days in the Champions League, no? Two, two teams like that who have great football histories in their in their countries, but maybe aren't considered to be among the the elite aristocracy of, of, of the European landscape. And yet here they are in the final four, um, having upset other big teams along the way. Right, yeah, and not so much actually with the other big teams, although Nantes did win one of their legs in the semi-final against Juve. I think one of the reasons that allowed them to make this, this run was the fact they were drawn in a phenomenally easy group, while... Other sides like Juve and Borussia Dortmund were, were lumped in together. Uh, Panathinaikos and Nantes were in a group with Porto and Dinamo Kiev, who were then thrown out Dinamo Kiev and replaced by the team they'd beaten in the preliminary round, Alburg, because uh, Kiev had uh, well, basically were, were accused of a failed attempt to bribe the referee in that match, Antonio Lopez Nieto. So Alburg came in and, and uh, Panathinaikos and Nantes went through. So, Nieto said Niet. To, uh, I guess to, so. Yeah. I guess so. Chicken Kiev. Yeah. Blackburn were the Premier League's representatives. They had what looked like an easy draw as well. They were in a group with Spartak, Ligia Warsaw and Rosenborg. How did they do? They finished bottom, it's true. Just one win against Rosenborg. 
Still, they did delight the continent along the way. As Matt Hawksworth points out, uh, Mike Newell scored the first Champions League hat-trick by an Englishman in that win over Rosenberg. It's also the fastest hat-trick in Champions League history, or at least it was. Uh, Bafatimi Gomez has now uh, done one even faster, but he, he basically scored three goals against Rosenberg in just nine minutes. But in, in the ultimate of dead rubbers between the two <laughs> bottom teams in that group, I mean, that whole season for Blackburn was, was very odd. I mean, they... Obviously, Dalglish had moved upstairs slash onto the golf course for that season, so uh, they struggled to kind of get much cohesion. There's a bit in David Batty's autobiography when Arthur Cox, the Newcastle assistant manager, found the Blackburn team the night before uh, Newcastle were due to play them in a pub, and he bought them all another round of drinks. You know, couldn't believe his luck. Um, and they kind of played the Champions League pretty much uh, in that fashion. Obviously, everyone remembers. Um, the fact that Batty and Lasso had that fight away. Yeah. Away to Sparta at Moscow. One of the all-time two teammates having a punch-up while the game goes on around them. Great moments. Uh, so basically, Batty's about to collect a ball out by the touchline. Lasso comes charging in, and there's a little bit of a clash between them, which ends up with Lasso on the ground. Batty clearly turns around and says something to Lasso, who has had quite enough, thank you, while the camera follows the ball off-camera, Lasso goes up to challenge Batty and we cut back to the pair just as Lasso's swinging a punch and lining up another before Tim Sherwood intervenes and manages to carve things a bit, but not that much because the pair of them, who kind of retreat to different areas of the pitch, continue to trade insults and, and very visible insults as the game continues. Lasso, apparently, well, he wrote in his autobiography afterwards, I swung at him connected and knew immediately that I had broken my left hand. <laughs> so there. What, one of the most bizarre things about all of this is that the referee was Pierluigi Pairetto. And what was his response to seeing two Blackburn players clash and then one hit the other? Was he locked in the, in the bathroom at the time? He was not. He was not. <laughs> no, he gave Blackburn a free kick. I mean, else people forget as well that Tim Sherwood, never someone to want, you know, to want to miss out on action. He also squared up to Colin Hendry in this match. It was very mm. much a team in... In dire straits. I mean, if you think back 10 years before this season, Blackburn had only just survived relegation to the third tier ahead of Carlisle. So, you know, they'd come so fast so quickly. And I think this this campaign was very much the, uh, you know, the point where they everyone realised they probably couldn't, you know, deal with the, the level that they'd reached so quickly. And the other kind of narrative for Blackburn at this time was Alan Shearer. You know, and he scored a penalty in their final game. That was the only goal he scored. And people were genuinely questioning whether he should still be leading the line for England ahead of Euro 96 because he hadn't scored for England for ages. He couldn't score in the continent's biggest competition. And yet in the Premier League, he scored five hat-tricks that season, which is a, a Premier League record. So it was very much kind of, is he a flat-track bully who can't do it in the bigger games? Probably a bigger shock than Blackburn completely screwing up was Rangers doing it. They'd obviously brought Gascoigne in in the summer. Um, you know, And at that time, Scottish football was probably on a par with English football and yeah they had an equally uh, dismal campaign whoa that's El Mueve Mueve by Sandy Papo we're in Spain Alvaro this was the season that Real Madrid made their first Champions League appearance where had they been well basically they they were suffering in Spain because uh, Johan Cruyff's Barcelona won four titles in a row. So Real Madrid was absent from Champions League and the European Cup for five years. And this was the return to the competition. And it was a shock of reality for Real Madrid because they came second in their group. Uh, Ajax came first. They were the European champions, Ajax. And probably it has never been such a display of quality by a foreign team in Madrid like Ajax did in 1995, to the point that uh, every former Real Madrid player and uh, pretty much all the newspapers understood that, that Ajax was in a different evolutive level over Real Madrid. At the same time, Real Madrid was uh, getting grips uh, with what playing in Champions League was, and a player, certain player called Raúl, broke into the Champions League uh, as a star. Uh, he scored six goals in that Champions League campaign. He was still 18 years old, I believe. And he proved from the beginning that uh, he could be the Real Madrid star for the next decade because that Real Madrid wasn't the Hollywood team that they are now, not at all. And uh, he was basically taking the reins of Real Madrid at, the, at a very young age. 18 years and 114 days 
role when he scored his first Champions League hat-trick. That's still the youngest ever hat-trick in the competition. The first six goals in that campaign of his 71 European strikes. Because he was the man who for ages held the kind of untouchable primacy for uh, most goals in, in European competition. But is now, I wouldn't say a forgotten man, but he's been certainly obscured a little bit by the, the rise of, of your Messi's and Cristiano Ronaldo's. Of course he has been, because Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi, for a number of seasons, maybe six or seven, they averaged one goal per game. And Raul's uh, average was around 0.41 per game, which was astonishing at the time. I also believe that uh, when Raul started playing, the score lines weren't that high, and the differences between Barcelona, Real Madrid, and the rest of the teams weren't that high either, so it wasn't that easy to score goals. But Raul has been always there, and uh, he's been the catalyst for Real Madrid to win a few Champions Leagues, especially in 2000, in 2002. And... Uh, that season for Raúl was the season where he matured as well, because I remember that in 95-96, uh, he, uh, he, he fell out with uh, the manager Arsenio Iglesias to the point that Real Madrid had to find him with uh, 6,000 euros. Uh, he also started doing too many acts, uh, and Real Madrid has to warn him that that was not acceptable. He had to focus more in his career, and too that was a oh, season ads. for Raúl to learn. A lot. Too and many ads. Too many ads, uh, too many, you know, too much media work as well. Right. And Real Madrid didn't like that, but it was a little bit the transition to the modern player. Now modern players do that a lot. And Raul was one of the first ones to start doing that at Real Madrid. And at the time, he's telling that Real Madrid was so much against that. Two things with Raul that I always remember is obviously when Madrid signed Beckham, who was, you know, obviously synonymous with the number seven shirt at Manchester United, there was absolutely no chance of him getting that number off Raul at Madrid, so I had to pivot to 23. And then I always quite liked the way that Raul, you know, left Madrid and went to play for Schalke for a couple of seasons and, you know, did really well there. And it's good to see a player, you know, leave the club he's been at his whole career and, you know, kind of expand his horizons a bit. And uh, yeah, that was good. Yeah, I would like to say as well that Cristiano Ronaldo couldn't take the number seven from Raúl either. Pep Guardiola described him as the most important player in Spanish football history. My word. Real Madrid knocked out in the quarterfinals that year by Juventus, who made it through, of course, to the final game, which was held on a baking hot day, the 22nd of May 1996, in Rome. Ajax, who, for their part, a breeze past Panathinaikos in the semifinals, were looking to retained the title. They had seven of the starting 11 from the previous summer's Champions League final as they faced Juventus. The sixth year in a row that a Serie A side was in the final, James, and as I mentioned before, the start of a run of three straight finals for Juve. Yes, and following uh, their road to the final, if you uh, want to put it like that, I mean, this is the season where the Goal Ale del Piero was uh, was born um, certainly on the European stage um, where he would often play off the left um, and cut inside and then pick out the top corner and you look at back at some of the goals that he scored in the group stages he scored in five of his six games in the group stages and the the, the goals against Dortmund and and Rangers are are classics of the uh, the del Piero kind of uh, back catalogue. Um, but this team, when you think about it, the one that had won the league under under Lippi for the first time in in nine years, everyone kind of associates it really with with the front three, um, with with Del Piero, Ravinelli, and and Luca Vialli. Um, the amount of running, craft, uh, and guile of uh, of those three, and uh, you know, in Vialli's case, someone who'd got to the Champions League final before the European Cup final um, as it was then as a Sampdoria player lost um, to Barcelona uh, finally being able to put that behind him in Rome and yeah, you know, a lot has been said about this Juventus team in retrospect but at the time they were harder, faster, stronger um, but also just more technically gifted I think than, um, than a lot of the teams particularly when you look at uh, not just Del Piero but yeah, the cameos that Paulo Souza made um, in in that team as well. He'd obviously go on and win the Champions League again the following year with Dortmund. So, a team that hadn't played in the Champions League the year before, but was seemed already, as you mentioned, with City as primacy in all European competitions, to be an immediate favourite and contender for it. When we talk about that Juve team, though, 
mentioned the front three, Viali, Ravanelli and Del Piero. So many other big names as, as well. Didier Deschamps in there, Antonio Conte, uh, Peruzzi, who was a monster in goal in this in this final, as, as he so often was. Also, Torricelli, Moreno Torricelli, who was such a, a legendary figure, the man who'd been playing for a works team at a factory in a pre-season friendly just a few years before uh, that, that took on Juventus in, in, in July of 92, in fact, and impressed uh, the then manager Giovanni Trapattoni so much, it was actually picked up for a, about £15,000 shortly afterwards and now in the Champions League final. A young Ricky Lambert watched it at home and his, uh, his eyes widened. I mean, actually, I remember watching this game being, you know, staggered at the, the stars and the level of quality. But then if you look at the lineups, who would have thought that Viali would go on to score four goals at Oakwell uh, in the future and that uh, Davids, <laughs> Davids would become manager of Barnet? If you'd have told me that night that Davids would later manage Barnet, I would have walked out of the room. It was uh, a final in which that player, Torricelli, started playing in one of the fullback positions. And for the extra time, they swapped him to the other fullback with uh, Pesotto, in which in chess, that is called castling, I believe, when you do that move. But they changed uh, both players' position, which is a very a strange tactical approach to a football game. And I think that Michael Cox, in his book, uh, Sonal Marking, uh, references that as well. So Marcello Lippi was basically playing a lot according to what the rival was doing. I think that his tactical approach to this game was spectacular, but generally speaking, during his uh, stint at Juventus, he made many changes. He was never reluctant to sell players. Uh, Viali and Ravanelli, in fact, left that summer after the Champions League final. Then Zidane left. That Juve was capable of uh, reinventing itself summer after summer, uh, which I believe that... Uh, it's uh, a bit of an anomaly considering how much money that team had and um, how important Juventus is. And however, they were happy to lose players because they knew that they had a terrific scouting system. And, uh, and yet, full tribute to a manager like Marcello Lippi for creating like uh, winning teams like uh, year after year despite losing important players. And their transfer guru, Luciano Moggi, what a renaissance individual he was. The game, though. Juve came out of the blocks hard. Totticelli going in eight seconds in, hard on Bojada. Uh, and it wasn't long before Juve's pressure told. Frank de Boer with a bit of a slip-up with Van der Sar. And Ravanelli's in, James. Attenzione, c'è un po' di imprecisione. Ravanelli, Ravanelli, attenzione, attenzione. Goal, goal! Goal! Sfruttando un errore di Frank de Boer. Ravanelli porta in vantaggio la Juventus. I mean, he's in. <laughs> but... Uh... And a, a finish from an acute angle. I mean, it's it's still uh, still it's still quite a remarkable finish to be able to to put it in from there. I think it has, without being a spectacular final goal, it is in some respects quite an iconic final goal. I think. Yeah, I think that Ajax side. I mean, I looked back at what Louis Van Gaal said after the game, and he was. Uh, you, you mentioned the mix-up there, and he was saying that um, we had players uh, who were coming back who'd had a long time out injured, um, Danny Blind, De Boer, and they weren't able to kind of play out in the way that they were used to. Um, I think they were also without the suspended Michael Reisiger as well. And Van Hal felt that really limited them, um, not only on that goal, but in the game in itself. Um, and Lippi certainly went into that game thinking that no team... Um, throughout the competition had pressed Ajax high up the pitch in the tournament so far. That was an aspect of their game plan. Um, and Ajax just weren't able really to play as fluently as they had, for example, in those games that um, that Alvaro mentioned against, against Real Madrid. It's true that they had um, some players coming back from injuries, but also Luis van Gaal had... Uh, that idea of uh, leaving Patrick Kluivert uh, on the bench and bringing him in in the second half, and I don't know if that was a good idea, uh, but generally speaking, uh, I think that Ajax never encountered uh, a team like Juventus that season, uh, a team that was tactically so flexible that they could change a lot during the game according to what uh, the rival was doing. Well, they did equalise Ajax in the, in the match, about four minutes before half-time, uh, Frank de Boer whipped in a free kick. Peruzzi, who otherwise had been having a... Fantastic game, can't hold on to it, and Yari Lippmann and him pops in and, and equalises from close range. That's the end of the scoring. It goes to extra time. There's a whole bunch of chances. Juve brought on Jugovic in the meantime, who's really dominating things, but no one finds the back of the net. Viali in particular with a series of really frustrating uh, moments, and of course one, one from Del Piero, who tended to do that in, 
in finals. And then we get to the penalties. It begins with Davids missing. It ends with Jugovic. Juve are the Champions League winners and worthy winners. I mean, it was tight, but worthy winners, would you say? I would say yes, generally speaking, because uh, Marcelo Lippi made the best of his resources available. And uh, I think that Ajax was slightly better, generally speaking. I think that Ajax would have won the league if they had played the league with Juventus that year. But uh, Juventus made the most of what they had, and uh, that was very impressive as well. And Del Piero had a glorious chance in the extra time as well. He could have wrapped up the game. The final's very of its time. It's very, you know, Ajax with a, a team dominated by young Dutchmen, Juventus very much the kind of representative of Serie A in, it, in its pomp. You know, it's the sort of final you're not really going to see in modern football. Um, and as such, it's, it's quite a compelling final to complete quite a compelling season. Well, it marked also a watershed for both sides. As Alvaro mentioned, it was the last Juventus game for Viali and Ravanelli. Juve have been to the final five times since that day in Rome, but they've never won the Champions League since. Ajax had never actually made it back to the, the final since they were gutted uh, by the Bosman ruling, which had taken place just a few months before this match, December 1995, allowing EU players to transfer on a free once their contracts were up. And within a few years, almost the entire squad that had played in those two Champions League finals had moved on. Interesting choices. You talked about uh, David's ending up at Barnet, but Ravanelli going from Juve to Borough, that was a strange one. Famously played more games for Derby than he did for Borough as well, which is always a did slightly he? confusing. Yeah. This is a bit strange, but uh, at the school we, we used to do one thing that was called Due Ravanelli, which was basically take the blackboard duster and uh, <laughs> stamp it on someone's head. And then that person was returning home with white hair. Uh, so it was funny to see yes, a 13 years old kid like leaving home uh, looking like a Steve Martin. And we did that a lot. Do a Ravanelli. I always thought his celebration was, uh, was kind of trademark as well. Something that mm. a lot of people copy, just sort of, you know, yeah, pulling their shirt up, putting it over their head, and then invariably, in my case, sort of tripping over and face planting. Um, but um, it led to yeah, injuries, that was yeah. him scoring that hat trick on his debut for Borough. You know, the only player to ever score a hat trick on his Premier League debut, and you know, doing the celebration as well. It was very much we talked earlier about the first few seasons of the Premier League still being first division s. Well, maybe Ravanelli doing that was what kicked off truly kicked off the Premier League era. Or as Peter Bradley would say, Ravanelli. Pene Bianca, by the way, white feather, Ravanelli, uh, recently had that short stint as manager of the French side Ajaccio, James. Do you, do you recall? Uh, I do. Um, yeah, he brought the same fitness coach, who was his fitness coach at Juventus in, in his playing days, um, and it didn't end particularly well. Um, let's put it like that. I see. Because in the place of Ravanelli and company... Davids, Zinedine Zidane, Alan Boxic and a young Christian Vieri were arriving in Turin to suit up for La Signora. And we'll be hearing more about them when we move on to Champions League Chapter 5, the 96-97 season, next time, next Thursday. Moving on then from the Champions League, shortly in today's show, we'll have another of the sports great occasions, uh, Rafa versus Daniel Part 2. Can story make up that two-point gap in the unexpected general knowledge round? First, though... It's Flicks and Kicks. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Finding pastel de natas in a London cafe? Special. Winning the little jackpot on Paddy Power Games? Not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com, 18plusbegumbleware.org. Flicks and kicks. Jackie McQuillan, Scotland's most notorious star soccer player. Oh, McQuillan! has been chosen to boost the town's struggling teams. This guy's going to give us the punch we need, Gordon. Film four in our Flicks and Kicks season is the unambitious but quite amiable A Shot at Glory, in which Scottish second division side Kilnocky get an unlikely shot at glory and, more importantly, their manager and star player learn a little something, which is that Robert Duval does a Scottish accent like a man having a strong anaphylactic allergic reaction. 
the cast. Michael Keaton is the American owner who thinks moving a Scottish second division team to Dublin makes good business sense. Robert Duvall is hideously miscast and appears to have recorded his part backwards, while Ali McCoist is a revelation as the Charlie Nicholas-esque football star back in Scotland and looking for a late career triumph. James, did you enjoy this? I didn't expect to see um, two sex scenes involving uh, Ali McCoist. Um, <laughs> that, that came as a bit of a surprise. I learned a lot, actually, from uh, uh, Robert Duvall's uh, character. Uh, is it McCloyd? Jim McCloyd, is it? Um, hey, Gordon. Uh, Gordon, sorry. Okay. McLeod McCloyd, or as he says, good McCloyd. <laughs> For example, I think a lot of young goalkeepers um, can learn a lot from, from this film, like... You know when he's talking to the uh, the the guy from the states, Kelsey, the 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 rookie Kelsey. goalkeeper who'd who'd never played outside of Dartmouth College. Goalkeeping's like fly fishing. Um, you know you've just got to keep your eye on the fly. And it was those kind of pearls of wisdom that I think will keep me coming back to this film in many years. Um, I also felt really bad that McCoyst, um never really gets to drive his car after n- almost knocking over an old lady um, in the in the opening scene. People just take it out of his hands all the time. And there's one bit where a bottle of whiskey falls out of the car, and I just I assumed that whiskey was in it. But the love interest says you're drinking beer out of a whiskey bottle. I was just like, what What the hell is going on? No, that was a reference back to when she was like, are you drinking heavily? And he's like, I'm not on the hard stuff. I'm just drinking beers with the boys. So right. I think she was being quite cutting at that point. I think cutting. you might have missed a bit of subtext there, which is a shame <laughs> because at most points, they don't let you have subtext. They point it out. There's a point quite early on when McCoist's uh, ex-wife, who's sort of now sort of back together with, is talking to her mum. And she says, Jackie and dad are more alike than they are different. Um, which, yeah, that is the point of the film. You don't need to spell it out early doors, but there we go. But what they don't actually point out, in the, the, there's a lot of subtext about this, is like, why does Michael Keaton's uh, owner character think that moving the team to Dublin is a good idea? I don't understand. Well, I, I, I mean, historically, this came out in the early 2000s, which was not long, well, about the same time that Wimbledon had tried to move to Dublin. So I guess you could argue that it was a, it was a live topic. But I'm not mm. sure why Dublin would have welcomed this tiny, you know, lower league Scottish team. I mean, at Wimbledon, we're in the Premier League. It kind of made sense, if not moral sense. This did not seem to hang together. But I did like the way that as an, as an American chairman, he, he didn't actually watch games. He stood behind glass chewing gum furiously. It was very, you know. <laughs> and I think that the, the chewing gum of uh, Robert Duval was quite believable. Reminded me of uh, Sam Allardyce a little bit, and the style. I don't know if he took inspiration in some other days. Uh, what I have to say about the movie is that the plot was quite um, conventional, and it was pretty predictable what was happening in the movie. Uh, but the most predictable thing of all for me is that there was a, an overhead kick goal. I think that in every football movie or in every football ad, there is always that. And I don't, I don't think that it's such a, such a big thing. There are better things to do in football. But having a professional player like Ali McCoist uh, just taking part in the movie, you believe it a little bit more because right. I've seen in some sports movies. And for example, I think that you remember the Bjorn Borg versus John McEnroe one uh, playing tennis. Uh, in that movie, it becomes very clear that the actors have no clue about how to take a racket and how to grab it. But here at least you see a professional footballer scoring goals. So that made the movie slightly better, I think. Robert Duvall's accent is anything but uh, conventional, which, like Kilnocky, went on an extremely unlikely journey throughout this movie. Oh, aye, good. Could nice score in the brothel now. What do you think it was available? After the draw, we'll know who's up next, but it won't matter if we play like we played on Saturday. We got the goal. We weren't sure we could get lads. Hey, now we have to make it stand up. Don't get caught ball watching. See the ball through your man. That's the way you're shutting down. You cut off their movement. And remember, you only get one chance at a premier team. This is our shot at glory, lads. All right? All right? Go again. It's a goddamn mugging, and you know it. Turn your back again. You do that, eh? Always was your best side. Yeah, an unconventional accent. Unconventional manager as well. 
foregoing a half-time team talk in the cup final to chat with his daughter, telling a goalkeeper he's just made a mistake that he shouldn't have been born and mocking mm. his stutter. Happy days. By contrast, and this is what listeners really picked up on, while Deval was a little bit of a, a controversial casting choice, Ali McCoist was quite inspired as the uh, footballing hero. Finney Mark says, this is one of my favourite rubbish movies of all time. Ali McCoist incredibly good in it, like surprisingly good. Mike McCahill says, friend and I paid to see this at our local cinema. We're the only two people to do so. Both of us were surprised by how good Ali McCoist was in it. Almost a pity he didn't get more acting work off the back of it. Andrew Lang offers Super Ali. He's just a handsome man, isn't he? And actually a really good actor with excellent comedic delivery. My man love is strong with this one. Kevin Costner uh, famously described him as having an Olivier-type quality. He was really good. He, like, yeah. genuinely, he, he plays the part really well and, and is really believable um, in, a, in a film where there are a few unbelievable scenes. Like, why would Rangers fans try and disrupt a small team ahead of the a cup final when they would be clearly be confident of, of winning? Why did the team train in an agricultural facility at one point for no reason at all, just so they can get a, a you know, nice background of Scotland and, and things like that? But yeah, Why I mean, did they do an open-top bus parade after the semi-final? And before yeah, the that final. was really... I mean, I was fuming, to be honest, about that. I mean, you can't <laughs> do that. that. No wonder they lost. I would have paid to see this um, had I not been exposed to any kind of critical review or reaction. Um, because, you know, if you look at the kind of the billboard, you know, it's got Robert Duval, it's got Michael Keaton, Mark Knopfler doing the soundtrack. I mean, right. and Brian Cox, and I mean, Owen I, Coyle. And, yeah. Right. And Hugh Dallas. I, I never thought I'd see conciliary Tom Hagen and Batman discussing Scottish football, but, but here we are. <laughs> One of the things I thought about, you know, when, when I knew I was coming on this show with Duncan, there's that scene where uh, Michael Keaton's character welcomes Duval into his, like, sort of, I don't know, um, Scottish castle or whatever, um, and he shows him a computer, um, and he points to it, and he goes, like, look, it tells you the scores. Uh, man, you, you want to see something cool? <laughs> <laughs> He's got like live score up. <laughs> oh, amazing. Maybe football is one of these sports that doesn't have like an ultimate movie yet. Uh, boxing has Rocky, and I think Rocky is. Uh, we will all say that it was like a good movie, and there is a saga out of it. Um, in uh, American football, uh, NFL, there is uh, the movie Any Given Sunday, which is at least decent. But football is one of these sports that maybe is waiting for their their best movie to come, you know? No, this, this is very much the premise that we began Flicks and Kicks with because this is a decent film, but where this say about baseball, no one would give it a second thought. It's the fact that most football films are so disastrous that a reasonably competent one like this can actually excite some positive reactions. It's just a measure of how very low the bar is. And uh, that's why we're on this quest to try and find a good one. So far, we've had Green Street... Escape to Victory and United Passion, in that order, in, in your estimation, Duncan, where are you going to put Shot at Glory in that? Well, this comes straight in at number one for me. Straight in at number um, one? Of those four, I should point out. Um, yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. And I think, you know, it was, it's kind of, it had a kind of nice Scottish vibe. It was less what's the story, Balamori, more what's the story, Jackie Scory. So, yeah, I liked right. it. Right, like it. Okay. Well, next time out, then, we'll uh, see uh, if somebody can knock them off their perch. And I think next week we're going to try the Mean Machine remake. Be excited when I tell you that it features, yes, Vinnie Jones, but also Danny Dyer and Jason Statham and a football. Wow. And presumably a bicycle kick. We'll uh, be back with that one in next Thursday's edition of the Totally Football Show. Right now, though, it's time to conclude today's show with Raphael Honigstein against Daniel Storey in the second round of our quiz. Welcome back, Raphael Honigstein. Hello. And welcome back, Daniel Storey. Hello. Very good. We're ready then for the general knowledge round. The situation, of course, is that Rafa scored a perfect five out of five on his specialist round. Daniel currently two points behind as we head into the general knowledge questions. Rafa, you're going to begin... Your first general knowledge question is, from which team did Juventus buy Roberto Baggio to break the world transfer record in 1990? 
That's specialist knowledge, not general knowledge. Counts for any totally listener as general knowledge. Was it Sampdoria? It was not. It was not. Fiorentina is the answer. Ah. Question two. What is the next name in the following sequence? Davosuka, Ronaldo, Miroslav Klose, Thomas Muller, and... Next name in that sequence. Uh, this is the leading goal scorers in the World Cup. That so is correct. 18... Uh, I can't remember. Okay, the answer is James Rodriguez. Ah, Woof. Question three. Which country has seen its clubs win the Champions League or European Cup more often? England or Italy? I'm going to say England. England is correct. Question four. Alfredo Di Stefano played for three different countries. Which were they? Italy, Spain and Argentina? No, it was Spain, Argentina and Colombia. And Mm. question five then. Who are the bottom three in the Premier League at the moment? Uh, Norwich. Yes. Aston Villa. That's correct. And... uh, No checking, Rafa. Have to hurry you. I'm not checking. Uh, Burnley. I'm afraid it's not Burnley, but Bournemouth. That's what I meant, Bournemouth. At the end of that general knowledge round, Rafa, you scored one point out of five, giving you six out of ten. Daniel. I knew knew I'd I'd be struggling. Daniel. You need four to go straight through to the quarterfinal. Are you ready? Uh, Yes. Good. Neymar and Kylian Mbappe are currently the two most expensive players in football history. Who is the third most expensive player in football history? Hmm. João Felix? Is correct. Three more for that place in the quarterfinal. Here's question two. Here's a list of English goalscorers at the 2018 World Cup. Which player is missing? Harry Kane, John Stones, Jesse Lingard, Harry Maguire, Kieran Trippier. Deli Alley. Is correct. Needing two more for a place in the quarterfinals. Question three. Complete this sequence. Juventus, Atletico Madrid, Juventus, Liverpool. Uh, Tottenham, it's losing Champions League finalists. Is correct. And now you are one correct answer away from the quarterfinals. Question four. Which Spanish team, other than Barcelona, did Johan Cruyff play for? Oh. Oh, he went somewhere on a... Where did he go? It was a protest thing. It... Time's up. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I was going to say Leganes, but it's definitely not Leganes. It wasn't Leganes, it was Levante. Question oh, five yeah. then. This to take you through to the quarterfinals, otherwise we're heading for a tiebreaker. Question five. Who is top scorer in the Premier League as it stands? Oh, Jamie Vardy? Is correct, and you're through yes. to the quarterfinal. Scheiße. Wow. Uh, How are you feeling, Daniel? Uh, relieved, but good, thank you. Rafa, what happened in the general knowledge round? Did you genuinely know? I, I genuinely did, didn't know that it was general knowledge. I'm rubbish in quizzes. Right. Apparently you are. That's remarkable. Well, sorry, because you, you had the perfect score in the first round and you must have been booking your place uh, for the quarterfinal. And and, uh, and instead you head home or, or stay there, in fact. Lovely to have you on, though. And congratulations on your Bayern Munich knowledge and daniel look forward to having you in the corners very soon bye rafa (laughs) (laughs) i'm depressed now wow what what a come from behind by daniel's story but what a collapse there by honigstein i mean was this was this held in istanbul What, what, what happened here I just like to see Rafa in the image of Sami Kufor at the end of the 1999 um, Champions League final, <laughs> punching, punching the pitch. Yeah. Charlon Heston in the, at the end of the, the Planet of the Apes, uh, and punching the floor in anger. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Crazy bastards. Yeah.
No, no, absolutely. Uh, Congrats really to, Im- to Daniel yeah. as well. I mean, that you know, that's a lot of pressure. Game of two exactly. halves, he came back. Was the know, pressure strong. off though? You know, it was nothing to lose. But then he put it back on and then he took it off again. Really impressive stuff from Daniel Story. Who makes it through to the quarterfinals? And of course, there'll be another two fresh-faced hopefuls having a go in our next show, a Sunday night, Monday morning. Also, in uh, Monday's show, we'll have Michael Cox, uh, Daniel Story and Matt Davis-Adams. And we'll be running up all sorts of stuff, not least some uh, choice tidbit from Premier League's past. There's also, as of Friday morning, a brand new Golazzo out. Uh, what's that going to be about, James Horncastle? It's going to be about the Juventus side in the late 50s, which had one of the most iconic forward lines uh, ever in Italian football history of Omar Sivori, John Charles, the gentle giant, and Giampiero Boniperti. Woof. That, though, is it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed it, Duncan, James and Alvaro. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure. Good. They sound convinced. Hope you did too, listener, and you join us soon for more Totally Football Show. For now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter, and make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Media.